Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The Internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined today by Chelsea and Brittany of the Red Justice Podcast. Chelsea, Brittany, how are you guys doing today? Doing good. How are you? Um, I'm doing all right. It's my first interview since I've returned from CrimeCon. Um, so we'll see if my brain has reengaged from the no sleep in Vegas all week. So And uh, and Brittany, I hear you said you just came from uh, Disney World. World or land? Disney World. So I went to Universal for two days and then to Disney World for three days with my cousin and my niece and nephew. And so I just literally landed about an hour ago and then drove here. So, Oh, <laughs> and Chelsea, Chelsea went ahead and booked you a, an interview for 60 <laughs> yeah. minutes after you landed. At yes. The <laughs> yes, she did. I'm really thankful to her. But no, I'm very happy to be here with y'all today. I mean, well, to be fair, great. time is of the essence. I'm due to give birth like any day now, so... Yes, I, I was. Ju- <laughs> I was just going to say. So, yeah. so I want to get to know you guys a little bit, and I'll start with you, Chelsea. And I saw uh, in my notes that uh, it says that you are currently pregnant and cl- and very close to your due date. And, and Erica wrote this like last week. I thought, well, that's a that's a gamble. Um, how close are we? <laughs> yeah, next week. So we're like a week and a half away. But my daughter came a week early, so I was like, it could be any day now. Right. So, so there's no, we're not taking two hours after you land, Brittany. We're going to be doing this <laughs> immediately. <laughs> right. In case the baby got, you know what? If like you go into labor on the podcast, that'll be like, we'll make true crime binge history. True. You know, and- anything, anything for ratings these days. Right. <laughs> That'd be podcast gold. <laughs> and she's thinking about naming her baby Bob Ruff. So. Oh, well that's, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. There's probably so many Bob Ruff babies out there. <laughs> Just one word. Uh, so Chelsea, you have you you have an online store called Scuffle Town Suppliers, where you do candles and you both have online stores. So yeah, I, I guess. So did you guys meet in your online stores, or <laughs> like what is your relationship with each other, and how is it that you both have stores? Well, it's funny because those are actually other side hustles of us because we both have real day jobs as well. <laughs> Um, but that is kind of how we met. Um, we're both from the same um, tribe, from the same area, but we did not grow up together or anything like that. But Brittany actually was, I guess, a customer of mine is kind of how we met and through social yeah. media. So, yeah. Nice. Did you guys like share the idea where you were like, Brittany, you should also have it because your, uh, y- your online store is called what? Let me find it in my notes here. Or you could just tell me. And it's make it called Super <laughs> Indian Apparel. 
And I actually okay. had an idea of doing like a t-shirt company that was like super pro-native, pro-indigenous, and then Chelsea beat me to it. Uh, so the Chelsea <laughs> store came out first. And we have kind of similar stuff, but also candles and board game where you have puzzles and socks. And I mostly just do t-shirts. So hers is a lot cooler than mine. <laughs> Chelsea, all these things, the, the, the board games, are these all things that you make? Uh, yes, or or make my husband make to his unfortunate demise because he's also the editor <laughs> of our podcast. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> we we wrangle him into everything. His name's Dakota, correct? Yes, Dakota. Yeah, and so he just gets wrangled into all of your side hustles. Yes. So how does that cover? Is it like, hey, I've got this new idea for a way that I want to make some money, and then by the way, you work for me now? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of how marriage works. Isn't that what a husband is? That's what I was about to say. It's like a really, it's a more extensive honeydew list. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It makes total sense. And, and, and your day job says you're an, you're an analyst for an investment management firm. What what does an analyst for an investment management firm do? Uh, yeah, so I work for an international investment advisor, mostly on doing client service relationship um, building for a company. It's based here in Raleigh with offices in Switzerland too. So totally separate from anything podcast or apparel related. Um. Right. <laughs> so so your three jobs are all very different. Yes, of course. <laughs> none, none of them intermingle. Uh, and, and so Brittany, uh, so both of you are members of the Lumbee tribe, which I want to talk about a little bit. I want to know a little bit more about your tribe. But, but your background, so uh, it says here that you, you graduated from UNC and Duke. Is it you just couldn't get into a good school? Or? <laughs> oh, that's a good <laughs> I'm actually at Duke right now, too, on Duke's campus, because that's where I work right now. Um, but yeah, I went to Duke for undergrad. I went to UNC for my master's. And so I experienced the rivalry kind of on 10 since I was at both schools. Right. And even when I was here at Duke, I went to a Duke Carolina game in person and we won. And then when I went to Chapel Hill, I went to a Duke Carolina game in person and Duke lost and I got cussed out because I was wearing a Duke shirt. So I really got the full the full experience right. at both schools. So do your loyalties lie with Duke? Oh, of course. That's the superior schools, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see. Well, because because you're you're a you're a postdoctoral research associate. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and I know what that means, but just for like anybody else, if you explain what that means. I feel like most people don't know what it means. I'm always like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a postdoc is is someone who has just finished their PhD and they're doing a, so that's literally means just postdoctoral program. And so typically you'll have this job for a year or two post PhD before you get a faculty appointment. And so in my role, I do research and my boss is actually Lumbee too. And so we do a lot of native focused research, but he's a hydrologist who studies water and I'm an education expert, and so we kind of are merging our two interests together and examining the ways that environmental professionals make major decisions about native lands and native territories without knowing anything about native peoples. And I think similar themes are also found in our podcast as well. Right. That's incredibly interesting. And so, and you said you, you finished your PhD, so you're actually Dr. Brittany Hunt? Yes, but you don't have to call me that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't, well, actually. Good. <laughs> good uh i mean i i would but i always i always slip up so i'm glad you gave me permission yes. to slip up and not i do it every time i have dr shiloh and dr scott on i keep calling them shiloh and scott and then i feel but people someone always emails me and they're like oh that was very disrespectful oh they're my doctors. god <laughs> so, i don't feel like that at all so please don't just call me Brittany. 
Well, congratulations on your doctorate, and thank you for permission for me to forget to call you doctor. Um, <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Things easier on me. Um, and you even you co-authored a book called. Now it's it's called. Am I pronouncing it? Is it is it woes ya people? Not quite. It's who's ya people. So, but <laughs> good people? good try. So it's a very lumby, <laughs> like quintessential lumby phrase, and it's a phrase okay. that. So you know how in American culture and Western culture, when you meet someone for the first time, you might ask them, what do they do for work? Or those are typically like the first questions you would ask someone. But in Lumbee uh-huh. culture, the first question that you would ask anyone, but particularly another Lumbee person is, who's your people? Because we want to identify who do you know who I know? Who are you kin to? Who okay. I'm kin to? And you're trying to establish kind of a, a connection Kinship to that guys. person. Yeah, for sure. And so you would ask, okay. who's your people? And so you go. So then if, if, if a Lumbee person asked me, I would start with my grandparents and then I would go to my parents. And then if they didn't know them, I would tell them where I was from in Lumberton specifically, where I went to church. And so the book is about a little boy who is starting school for the first day in our tribal territory after living away for a while. And he's nervous mm-hmm. about not knowing anyone. And then quickly he learns that he has a whole community to to rely on and to back him up. And so he he gets asked the who's your people question often throughout the book. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, you're in North Carolina. Is that primarily where the Lumbee tribe resides? Yes. Yeah, so we're mostly in Robeson County, North Carolina, which is in the southeastern part of the state, on the right on the South Carolina line. Okay. So t- tell me about the Lumbee tribe. Chelsea, do you want that one or me? <laughs> Oh, what isn't there to say? Um, so the Lumbee tribe are technically the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River, uh, about 60,000 uh, members with a very, very complicated uh, history, uh, especially with the U.S. federal government. For example, we were federally recognized in 1956, but uh, not entitled to the rights of most federally recognized tribes because we were recognized um, right during the termination era where a lot of tribes were actually being stripped of their um, recognition rights. And so still, uh, even this past year, there's a bill in Congress about um, retaining that full recognition status for the Lumbee people. Um, so a very complicated uh, relationship, as I mentioned, but uh, very unique people. Um, Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, who's also a Lumbee and a professor, calls us the original Southerners. And it's very true. You probably hear uh, Brittany and I's accent. Um, if you uh, go are ever curious about like the way Lumbee people talk and the way our accent is, um, if you Google Lumbee English on YouTube, there are several videos because uh, we actually speak in a in a separate English dialect than other Southerners where we know we could have our eyes closed and be in a room with a thousand people from the South. But if we hear one Lumbee speaking English, we know that that person's Lumbee just by the way they speak. Um, so, oh, wow. so our accent isn't just Southern, it's actually a, a, a dialect of Lumbee English. Um, so, uh, really unique people. Um, like I said, also kind of quintessentially, uh, Southern in, in many ways as well. Um, and you know, we're kind of, uh, I don't want to say the, the leftovers of several tribal nations that were in Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina, but, uh, you know, our historical tribes are made up of, of many different ancestors as well from um, tribes in the South, because where we're from in Robinson County is mostly swampland. Um, and so it was a great place to hide out. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, settlers did not know how to navigate the swamps like we did. They did not know how to farm it and irrigate it um, in the way that we did. So for a long time, we were protected, um, which is why there's so many of us today. You said there's 60,000 members yeah. of the, the Lumbee tribe. Wow. A whole That's- lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, and, and, and primarily you said located in 
The one is it? Did you say Robinson County? Robinson yeah, County, um, yeah. Yep. Wow, that's so. So tell me about the the podcast. So so the Red Justice Project is is a COVID podcast. Hmm. It looks like as many that we've spoken to are. You guys launched in November of 2020. Did did COVID have anything to do with the launch of your podcast? We actually had the idea before COVID, and we were kind of procrastinating, I guess, because of our many different roles that we have. So we actually had a different sure. name of our podcast. It was going to be called Stolen. And then by the time we got ready to launch, someone else already had that name. So we had to change the name of our podcast, <laughs> which I actually like our name now better. Um, but it was actually Chelsea's idea. She listens to true crime podcasts a lot and pretty avidly. And so she brought me into the world of listening to podcasts through her idea of us hosting an indigenous true crime podcast. And so I started by listening to Serial, which then led me to uh-huh. you, which then led me to a yeah. whole host of other true crime podcasts. And I think one of the most common themes that we notice throughout these is this obsession oftentimes with certain kinds of victims who are almost sure. never Native American people or indigenous women, even though indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered or go missing in, in, in various parts of the country and definitely in Robinson County where we're from which has a higher violent crime rate than Chicago and New York, um, even though it's a pretty rural county in North Carolina. And so very regularly we're hearing about murders in our county. Just last week there was four in a row. Um, A body was just dug up last week, and now they've identified who the person is. And so there are all these different crimes that are happening very routinely where we're from and in uh, indigenous communities all across the nation. But there's very little media coverage and so we wanted to exist kind of in that gap. Yeah, well, I'm so so glad that you guys are doing that because, you know, a lot of, and I'll admit, I'm, I'm one of them, a lot of the missing and murdered indigenous uh, women cases started to come to light after the uh, the Gabby Petito case, which, you know, made national headlines. It's interesting that, you know, a, a white girl that goes missing and then is later found is what seemed to finally point people get people to take a look and it was because there were activists that were you know up in arms saying hey why why does this one person get all this attention look at the numbers of right. of indigenous women that are abducted and and have gone missing and have been and have been murdered and no one's paying attention as, as a matter of fact i would love your your take on this i mean i've i've determined i don't really have the time to do everything i want to do but you know you guys are doing it and you're part of the tribe uh, which which is amazing, and the in the the podcast the episodes that I've listened to that you guys have put out are are just incredible in the depth that you go into. What do you feel as to uh, you know women from this from an indigenous tribe from the the Lumbee tribe? How do you feel about non indigenous people telling these stories? Because and I and I and I'll, I'll preface that by by telling you when when I started to learn about this, the the part of me that inside of me that is like, oh my god, I want to I want to make a difference, I want to help. My first instinct was I can use my voice to tell some of these stories to try to help the cause. And I always got mixed messaging from people saying, you know, some people were like, that's great, do it. And then other people were like, you as a white man shouldn't be telling these stories. Do you, do you guys have a, a feeling one way or the other on that? Because it's, it's something that I'm just genuinely curious about because it kind of took me aback. I was like, but I'm trying to help. But then I also understand the the other side of that. How do you guys feel about non-native people telling the stories, investigating and, and, you know, and broadcasting these stories. I think for me that white allyship is really critical in amplifying 
what's happening to Indigenous women across the nation. There are a lot of white podcasters who are very prominent and popular, just like you or like Ashley Flowers and Britt from Crime Junkie or so many other mm-hmm. podcasts that I can name. And you all provide a different level of visibility that Chelsea and I can't provide at this time. And hopefully we will be able mm-hmm. to do that at some point. But I sure. think that, again, white allyship is going to be really, really critical on this issue. And when white podcasters begin to to cover these cases, they do typically make mainstream media more often. So I think that it's necessary for all people, uh, but particularly white people, honestly, to be more engaged in around this topic and, and more interested. Because, for example, when John Bonet happened, I remember that vividly, and it really bothered me, and still bothers me today. And I would like love to know what happened to John Bonet. Same with with uh, Natalie Holloway or Holly Bobo. There are all these cases that I think about and research, sure. but I don't feel like the average American takes that time to do that same kind of deep dive into cases of indigenous women or, or the, the average per American person doesn't really care about what's happened to Faith Hedgepeth or to Marcy Blanks or to Lisa Holman, different cases that we've covered on our podcast. Right. Uh, what do you think, Chelsea? Yeah. So I completely agree with Brittany and we created our podcast, not for indigenous people, even though the bulk of our listeners are indigenous people, we created it for the Bob Ruffs of the world, for people who are interested in true crime, um, who are not part of an indigenous community, but want to learn more, want to know what they can do. Like we created our podcast for you to say, hey, this is happening. Help us share the story. Help us tell the story. We are telling you what's going on. Uh, you know, we really do need any and all people who will get these stories out here because you know, as Brittany mentioned, the statistics are really alarming for the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and men um, in the United States. Like, And the numbers are actually really deflated from what you see. Any kind of research that you might have did before the show to see how many thousands are missing, um, they don't always encompass uh, fully the true number. Like, for example, I said the Lumbee have a really complicated relationship with the U.S. government. We're not counted in federal statistics of uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. So when we cover like Marcy Blanks, um, who, you know, we might talk about today, she's not counted in federal statistics for missing and murdered indigenous women, even though she's an indigenous woman. If Brittany and I were to go missing or murdered tomorrow, we would not be counted in federal statistics because of our tribe's relationship with the federal government. Um, So we need people who are going to let other people know that that it, it's complicated. And so while you, um, you know, we want you to amplify your, your voice and, and tell people, it's also um, hard to know that, like, hard to explain also the nuances of Indigenous relationships with the federal government too, right? Because you don't know all of those, right. those things. Yeah, and I understand there's there's also that there's some challenges too for people that are not part of the tribe to even get people to speak to them, and especially particular some some tribes. But that's... I, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I'm always it's you know it sometimes probably should be an off air conversation, but I but I like everybody to hear everything we're doing because I, I I always have these complicated responses, and and it's and frankly it's always white people telling me how not to offend some other community, right. and so if I get an opportunity to speak with someone from that community personally, you know I, I kind of echo from my perspective what you both were saying, which is. If I have a big voice and a big platform and I can use it to draw attention to this, then, you know, I want to be able to do that and I want to be able to be able to help. So uh, and, and hopefully this will uh, you guys coming on here will 
we'll put a lot more ears on the work you guys are doing because it, it's it, it's incredible work. You've already uh, you just launched in November of 2020. You've already done over 30 episodes. You've done two seasons, and your and your second season just started last month, right? Just in April. Last week, actually. Yeah. Last week, yeah. So you've got one episode out with for season two so far. Two. Yeah, two. As of yesterday. Right, and so when this by the time this airs, people, there'll be there'll be several for you to catch up on. Uh, the, the case I want, and and I guess tell me about the podcast. I didn't get into that. I mean, you guys cover obviously. I think people would get from context cases that are true crime stories um, from indigenous, you know, that involve indigenous people. So, kind of t- tell us the the mission of the podcast and what you're trying to do. Um, I think our our overall mission is to again amplify the stories that are often go untold in the media related to uh, crimes against indigenous people. Um, I know for so many of the families that we talk to for our cases, they're they're frustrated and angry because they're not receiving justice in the courts, but then they're also not receiving justice in the media, and they feel like no one cared when their child was killed or when their sister was mm-hmm. killed. And so I think for me, my personal mission is to stand in that gap and to show them that we definitely care and that the communities who or the folks who listen to us will also care as well. And I think providing that kind of acknowledgement of family's pain is, is a part of, of our mission and my personal mission as well. And we've seen in so many other places in the criminal justice system how attention does make changes. Even, you know, I work in mm-hmm. primarily in wrongful convictions. And we're seeing, like, you know, I, I'm hearing stories of police officers and prosecutors you know, when they're they're training and learning and teaching other, kind of passing the baton on to other people, telling them do your job like some podcaster is going to put it all over the internet because someone probably will. Right. Um, so, so just the fact that all of a sudden there's eyes and ears on what they're doing has changed behaviors, and I think that if we can put more eyes and ears on the fact that so many uh, indigenous peoples are are being murdered and kidnapped. Uh, then they'll be hopefully that would it would it would make them less of a target because it seems like it it's almost an easy target because nobody ever seems to care. The, the case we're about to talk to talk about today is a prime example of that. Um, uh, uh, Marcy Blanks, this this crime and, and and I'll let you guys break it down for us. It's it's awful and 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 it just, it's it's the type of crime that if this was. A white woman, I believe we would have seen it all over the national news, and yet I had never. This is your. Uh, it was your episode eleven uh, when you guys covered this case. Uh, until I listened to that, I had never even heard of this case before, which is which is tragic. So, um, I guess that's a good transition to move into uh, the case of the murder of Marcy Blank. So I'll let you guys kind of share her story. Yeah. So another part of our um, podcast that I think is different from others is that in some of the cases that we cover, we knew the victims. And so that's Uh the case here with Marcy. So I used to work as a school social worker. So when I went to UNC, I got my master's in social work. And then after I graduated, I worked at a high school and that's where I met Marcy. I worked there for a year and I mostly worked with ninth graders at that time. And Marcy was in the ninth grade. She was so beautiful. She was just funny. She was spunky. She did not care. She wouldn't let anybody mess (laughs) with her. Um, she had olive color skin, curly hair. She was skinny as a rail. Just, just a, just a vivacious and very lively person. 
And so I, she would come visit me in my office pretty regularly. She did skip school a lot. So when she was there, she would come <laughs> see me. Um, and I grew to really love her as a person over the time that I worked with her. And I met her mother during that time as well. And school social work was not for me as a profession. Social work is very difficult and grueling work, um, just mm. with the things that you have to hear about. And so I, I took another job after my first year working there. And then about a year into that job, I was with a friend in his car, and it was it was at night, and I got a text message, and the text said that Marcy had been murdered, and the person told me that she had been murdered by her boyfriend, which I which I later found out was not the case, and it was in November of 2016, so it's almost six years ago now, and I remember at the time. I wasn't as as obsessed with true crime, but I knew Marcy. And so this is one of the first examples of of a person who I knew well who was killed. And so I remember looking up her story online and not finding a lot at the time. And then whenever Chelsea and I decided to do the podcast, I knew for sure she was one of the cases that I wanted to to definitely cover. And that case, I think, marks a different a different era in our podcast because that's where we begin to really heavily rely on family interviews. And so the interview mm-hmm. with her mother uh, for the folks out there who, who will listen to the episode after one afterwards is one of the most heart wrenching ones that I think that we've ever done. I mean, to, to bear witness to a mother's pain when discussing something that should never happen to a mother in the first place, you know, it's unnatural in the in the scheme of of nature for a parent to lose a child but especially in the way that she lost Marcy and so to hear the way that she talks about Marcy and the way she the way that she talks about what happens was really chilling so it was early in the morning on November 16th uh t- 2016 and i believe Marcy was asleep um they lived in a small community um right outside of Lumberton Her mom had just left to go work, and I believe her mom works at a place called Smithfield, which which is a chicken plant back home in uh, Robinson County, which is where a lot of people work. And she had left early in the morning, I think around four or five or so. She had to go take Marcy's brother, who's special needs, to whoever the person is who keeps him while she works. And then she got a phone call about 45 minutes later. I can't remember if she had made it to work yet or not, but they said she needed to hurry up and get back home. And she thought that the that something had happened to Marcy, but she thought that Marcy was okay. But whenever her mom got back to um, where they live, she found out that Marcy had been stabbed um, and that the house had been set on fire. And so later on, um, she goes to the hospital to see Marcy, and they won't allow her. They wouldn't allow her to touch her. And that's the part of the interview that really just it was so difficult to listen to because she said. As a mother, she felt like if she could just touch her, then she could bring her back. And I think mm. that a lot of mothers feel these strong instincts for their children that are beyond reason and that are, I don't know, otherworldly or supernatural or primitive in a way that where we feel that you can just do something. She felt like she could touch her and bring her back. But since Marcy had been stabbed, technically her body was considered a crime scene. And so they wouldn't allow her to touch her baby. And so that was just the, the worst part of the interview personally. But she later found it. Uh, I don't want to interrupt. Not only was that part, I mean, it, it definitely broke me down 
listening to it. Yeah. Also, I do want to point out, because I don't think we, we've mentioned this, that Marcy was, she was 18, right, when this mm-hmm. happened. She was, just, she was 18, just a teenager. Just a teenager. Right. Just a teenager. So only 18 years old, probably 105 pounds soaking wet, too. And so later on, as the day goes on, Miss Mary learned, Miss, Mary is, is Marcy's mom. Um, and Marcy was actually named after her mother, who's named Mary, and then her grandmother, who was named Macy. So she put together the two and, and made Marcy. <laughs> but she later found out that um, that Marcy had been stabbed 89 times, which is honestly more times than I've heard of anyone being stabbed. And in, in all of the work we've yeah. done on our podcast, I haven't heard of anyone being stabbed that many times. Um, she found out that Marcy had also been raped. Marcy had just gotten fake fingernails put on, and they were all ripped off where she was trying to fight her attacker. She also soon learned that her attacker was um, a young man named Edward Wright, and I I guess we'll say alleged attacker at this time because he still hasn't been brought to trial, but he is in in police custody. But she had been raped, stabbed 89 times, and then he also set the house on fire. So since Marcy's brother is special needs, they had a special lock on the door of the house where they could lock it from the inside at night so that he wouldn't wander out because he he can wander. He wanders out sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And so the the guy, Edward, actually had tried to lock the door. He tried to lock Marcy into the house and take the key um, after he set it on fire, but he wasn't able to. And so he fled. And then Marcy, through some miracle, was able to leave the house after being stabbed that many times and burned again and raped. And she was able to leave the house and walk to the neighbors or crawl to the neighbor's house and who was a police officer. And she told him who had uh, stabbed her. And then unfortunately she passed away on his doorstep. And so then she was taken to the hospital later where her mother went to view her body. To me, that is the most incredible part of this story is what, I mean, what a strong, strong young woman she was like you said she was small yeah 105 pounds she had been beaten raped and stabbed 89 89 times yeah and still found the courage and the strength to get up and 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 find her own justice in a way that she may managed to make it far enough to get to someone who happened to happen to be a police officer and told him exactly who did this to her before she passed away it's just it's just incredible yeah yeah, I've I've never heard of anything like this in my life. And I listen to Dateline every week. I listen to Crime Junkie every <laughs> week. I am I listen to Snapped everything. I listen to your podcast and I have never heard of anything like this. The only thing close to it is a is a, a case I heard on the Oxygen Network of Jessica Chambers. And I'm not right. sure if she was stabbed, but she was maybe I don't know how they killed her, but she lived long enough to tell what happened to her. And she was set on fire as well. She lived long enough to say that it was either Derek or Eric who had done it. They couldn't really hear her very well. And then she passed away. And then they oxygen, I think did an eight part special on her case. And so just comparing that case to Marcy, who I think got four articles in our local newspaper. Yeah. Cause her name is M A R C E Y. And they, they would take the E out and so just to know that something like this, this, this disturbingly eerie and, and upsetting story got so little local coverage 
let alone getting any, you know, no national coverage or anything like that is, is I think, really upsetting. And, and it was also really upsetting for her mother, too. Right. And I, I want to, as, as we as we wrap this up, I don't often do that. I always tell you guys to check check a show out and it could be your next big true crime binge. But really, this is these stories are important. The stories they're telling are incredibly important. You hear from family members. I, I'm going to ask all of you to, to go give, a, give an episode. This is episode 11. Uh, Marcy Blank story. There's over 30 stories for you to listen to. Give them a listen, share them on social media and, and help be a part of bringing these stories into the public view because it's the only way we're ever going to make a difference is if we're able to make people aware of what's going on. And with that being said, I want to thank both of you. Their names are Chelsea and Brittany and the podcast is called The Red Justice Project. Check it out, please, and give every one of these stories a share if you can. Ladies, thank you so much for taking the time to join me, especially after just getting off of an airplane. (laughs) Of course. Thank you so much for having us. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.